Well, good morning, church. Grace and peace be multiplied to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. As we transition our time from worship in song, let's go ahead and uh, prepare our hearts to receive the truths of God's Word in prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, we are just grateful to be with our family, our church family. Uh, we're grateful, Lord, to worship together, to partake of the Lord's table together, and to come to your word together. And Lord, as we transition our time, uh, we ask that you would speak. As your servants, we are listening. Father, what we know not teach us, we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, please make us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, D.L. Moody, uh, the well-known evangelist and preacher born in the 1800s, uh, shared about being in a meeting one time when a man stood up. man declared, it took me 42 years to learn three truths. Moody thought to himself at the time, you know, if I could learn these truths now, imagine how much time it will save me later. The man began to share the truths, and he said, the first truth I've learned is that by human work and effort, I cannot obtain salvation. He said, the second truth I've learned is that God does not expect me even to be able to obtain salvation by my human effort and my human work. And he said, the third truth I've learned that take, took 42 years to learn is that apart from human work and effort... God provides salvation through the finished work of Christ on the cross. You know, if you're here this morning and you have learned those truths, whether it took you a long time to learn them or it took you a short time to learn them, if you have learned those truths and you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and received the adoption as sons, you are part of the family of God what we're going to continue to talk about this morning is how we are to live in light of the salvation that we've received by grace through faith in Christ. More specifically this morning, we're going to talk about the fact that if we have been adopted into the family of God, how God expects you and I to treat one another in the local church. And that's why I want to invite you to the letter of Galatians this morning as we're going to consider that together. We'll be in chapter 5, beginning in verse 26, and we'll be reading all the way through chapter 6, verse 10. My goal for you this morning is simple, and for myself, that as we walk through the Word, that you would walk away this morning being confident that God expects you and I as believers to be in relationship with one another, to be a part of Christian community, one of authenticity, one of transparency, and that God expects you and I to treat one another in a way that glorifies him who redeemed us, who, who bought us with his precious blood, who enables and empowers us by the Holy Spirit. And so Galatians 5, beginning in verse 26, would you stand in honor of the reading of the word as we consider what God expects when it comes to our relationship with one another in the church. 526 reads this way, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, 
he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught in the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit of the spirit will reap everlasting life. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The word of the Lord, you all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. Uh, What does God expect from us as believers? who've been adopted into the family of God, adopted as sons, who have received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit the moment that we trusted in Christ. What does he expect out of us when it comes to our relationship and how we treat our fellow brothers and sisters in the the church? Paul begins in chapter 5, verse 26, by telling us how not to treat our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says this, Do not... Uh, become conceited. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. You know, the reason Paul gives this first instruction that we read about in verse 26 is because of the unfortunate thing is that there are times when it is difficult, if we're honest this morning, to get along with others in the local church. There's a saying that goes, to dwell above with the saints we love. Well, that will be glory, but to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. And you know, that's kind of a a funny uh, rhyme. Nevertheless, it's too often true. It's too often true because it's difficult at times to get along with fellow believers in the church. And the reason it can be difficult to get along with fellow believers in the church is because some of us are more difficult to love at certain times than others. And what makes us difficult to love at times, Paul pretty much lays it out. What makes it difficult to love is when we become conceited, when we are provoking one another, when we are envying one another. And the other unfortunate thing is, is when we think about those who are difficult to love and make it difficult to get along in the local church, often the last person we think of is the person we see in the mirror each morning. But Paul, he doesn't instruct us to take a look at others or to make a list of those who are difficult to love in the local church. Paul invites us and instructs us to take a look in the mirror. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. And so what are we invited to check our hearts for this morning? Each one of us, we should first check our hearts if we are becoming conceited. Paul says this, let us not become conceited conceited. And the word conceited there, to become conceited, means to become boastful. To become boastful means to boast when there's nothing to boast about. It's this idea of being puffed up and thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. Someone once rightly said that humility is not thinking, thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And that's so true. We have a tendency to think of ourselves as if the world revolves around us, and we can have a tendency to be puffed up and to become conceited. And so first we're invited to take a look at our heart and consider whether or not there's any pride in our heart. Are we puffed up in any way? 
Um, last time, as we were comparing the work of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit, we talked about how one of the ways you know you are becoming conceited is whether or not your life and your ministry is marked by selfishness or service. When you walk into a room, a group, a small group, a large group setting like Sunday morning, are you looking to be served or are you looking to serve? Are you more interested in your preferences or are you more interested in making disciples, coming alongside of fellow believers and furthering the commission that we've been given to make disciples to the ends of the earth? And so this morning, we are invited to take a look in the mirror and ask, are there times when I'm difficult to love? Are there times when I become conceited and puffed up and instead of being marked by service, I'm marked by selfishness? Paul continues on and he basically tells us that being conceited can express itself in one of two attitudes. It can express itself in an attitude of superiority that leads to a competitive spirit provoking one another, or it can lead to an attitude of inferiority in which we seek to envy one another. Uh, first, it says provoking one another. Do, let us not become conceited, provoking one another. Uh, the word provoking there literally means to challenge in a competition. It's the idea that we come to church and we compare ourselves with others. We compare our gifts, we compare our influence, we compare our ministry, and as we compare ourselves to others, we say that my ministry, my gifting, and my influence is of much more importance than yours. And what Paul is warning us against is ever thinking that our ministry, our unique gifting, our unique influence is more important than anyone else's. How many of you know the Bible talks about our spiritual gifts and the functions, of the, functions that we have as a, as a body? You know, you've got a body, and you have different parts of that body that serve different functions. Some parts of the body are visible. Other parts of the body are just as essential, but they're invisible. How many of you know when it comes to your vital organs, those are incredibly important for your health, your well-being, and for the effective working of your body? And so, just because you don't necessarily see some of the ministries going on in the church by certain people, certain giftings being exercised, or the influence God has gifted each one of us, just because you have a gifting, a, a influence, and a ministry does not mean you are more important than anyone else in the church. I have my ministry, you have your ministry. I have my gifting, you have your gifting, and we function like a body under the headship of Jesus Christ, fulfilling the purpose for the church that we've been given to go and make disciples by going, by teaching, um, by baptizing, and as we do that, we accomplish the purpose of the church. So check your heart this morning. If ever you should think that your ministry, your gifting, your influence is more important than anyone Else's. And that gets in the way of being an effective church. That gets in the way of being a healthy church. So being conceited leads on the other side to an attitude of inferiority that expresses itself in envy. The key understanding of this, let us not become conceited, is let us not compare ourselves to one another. We have a tendency to do that, and when you compare yourself to others, you say, why do they have that ministry and I don't? Why do they have that unique gifting and I don't? Why do they have just incredible influence for the cause of Christ and I don't? And sometimes we, being 
conceited, being puffed up and prideful, we tend to think of ourselves more instead of thinking less, thinking of ourselves less. And we, we say, God, I have nothing to give you. I can't serve you in the way they serve you. And the reality is God is saying, don't become conceited in a way that leads to an attitude of envy. Take a look at your gifts. Take a look at your ministry. Take a look at your influence that God has uniquely given you and use them. Serve the Lord faithfully in the gifts and the influence and the ministry that God has provided each one of us. And so it's important this morning that you identify your ministry, that you identify your gifting, that you identify your unique influence that God has given you, and let us not be puffed up. Let us together as a body fulfill the task that we've been given to go and to make disciples. So let us not become conceited provoking one another with a competitive spirit, envying one another, but content in the gifting, the ministry, and the influence provided to each one of us. So that's how we should not treat one another. Isn't it interesting, though, that how we relate to one another is a direct result of our opinion of ourselves? When we think of ourselves more highly than we ought or more than we ought, it immediately immediately corrupts and causes dissension among the body of Christ. So first we're told how not to treat fellow believers by being conceited, by provoking one another, by envying one another. Secondly, we learn how we are to treat fellow believers. In verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul begins and says, by restoring one who has stumbled, restoring one who has been overtaken by a trespass. Paul puts it this way in verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Uh, It's interesting how Paul refers to them uh, in terms of this command to restore those who stumble. He reminds them of who they are. He reminds them by calling them brethren, and he calls them those who are spiritual. Those are the ones who are to listen to this command. And so first, if if you're a brother or sister in Christ, you've been adopted, you've received the adoption of sons, you've been adopted into the family of God, Paul calls you and I brethren through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to remind us if you're part of the family of God, if you and I have received the adoption as sons, you and I have a responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ to restore one another or to hold one another accountable if ever we find ourselves stumbling. So he begins, he says, if you're part of the family, and that should be all of us who've trusted in Christ as our Savior and Lord, you and I have a responsibility in the local church to one another to be restored and to restore to be held accountable and to hold accountable, to confront and to be confronted in love. And so first, he calls them brethren. Secondly, he refers to those who are spiritual. Are there different levels of spirituality when it comes to Christ? No. There's not some who are spiritually superior and others who are spiritually inferior. So what does he mean when he says those who are spiritual? He's talking about those who are walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5.26 says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He's talking about being filled with the Spirit in accordance with Ephesians 5, chapter 18. 
And so if our responsibility is to hold one another um, accountable, the Holy Spirit, if we are spiritual, enables us to restore those who have fallen with gentleness as we consider ourselves lest we also be tempted. And so don't go around restoring people in your own flesh, but restore people through the Spirit who enables and empowers you and I to do just that. Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So don't come under the influence of alcohol, losing control to drunkenness, but come under the influence of the Holy Spirit as you submit to the Holy Spirit moment by moment and day by day. Those who are spiritual should be every one of us. Because every day, every morning, moment by moment, day by day, we are submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. At the moment of salvation, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit seals you for the day of salvation. You cannot lose your salvation if you are genuinely saved. But the filling of the Spirit is a moment-by-moment submission and reliance to the work of the Holy Spirit in and through your life and mine. And Paul reminds us, as brethren, we have a responsibility to hold one another accountable. As those who are spiritual, we are enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the, or exercise the responsibility that we have been given. Secondly, the need for the command to restore those who are fallen. The text goes on to say, um, if a man is overtaken in any trespass. This is a reminder, the reason we need to restore one another and be restored is because uh, we find ourselves in times of weakness, in the weakness of our flesh, needing to be restored. There are times when we find ourselves get tripped up by sin, overtaken by a particular sin in our lives, and the Bible basically instructing us that we need fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to rescue us, to help restore us, to confront us and say, hey, I don't know if you've seen this, but I want to point this out to you in God's word. And so it's a reminder we all fall from time to time. We're reminded that we we all have our burdens, and some of those burdens are different temptations that we struggle with. And one of the ways that we overcome our struggles is through the accountability that God has provided through the local church. Some of us may think this morning, all I need is Jesus. That's so true, yes. Jesus is everything you need. But one of the means by which Jesus provides you everything you need is through a community of believers to help hold you accountable and for you to hold them accountable. For them to restore you when you need it and for you to restore them when they need it. So that's the need. We all fall from time to time and we need accountability and and people who know us and love us and who will restore us. And then we see the command itself... You who are spiritual, uh, submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Notice there, if you see another believer stumbling, it doesn't say ignore their sin. It says restore them. It doesn't say gossip about their sin. Even in a prayer and say, hey, I don't know if you saw so-and-so, but they were doing this or doing that. They're up to no good, and so we need to pray for that person. No, it says restore that person. The motivation is love. The motivation is restoration in a spirit of gentleness, considering ourselves lest we also be tempted. Matthew 18, 15 to 20 gives us a 
step by step for how we should restore those who have fallen. And the first step, and you can take a look at that later, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, the first step is a private conversation. If you see somebody who is sent, don't go and tell it to the pastor. Don't go in and talk about it and gossip about it. Don't ignore it. Go directly to that person and talk to them one-on-one and with the hope that they will be restored, confront them in their sin. Or if you need to be confronted in your sin, allow them to confront you in in your sin. Um, This one-on-one conversation, it's so important that when we have that one-on-one conversation, that if you're going to confront a sin, make sure you have a scripture to back it up. Don't come into a conversation giving your opinion or your experience, but when you talk to somebody, you have no authority to confront anyone in their sin in a spirit of gentleness if the word of God is not open. So the encouragement is if you see sin and you need to confront it, make sure God's word is open and have a private conversation with them or make sure they, as they confront you, have the word of God open as well. The second step is uh, a meeting of two to three. And so if they don't repent and um, doesn't tell us how much time you should wait in between those, it's really based on the work of the Holy Spirit. And you give the Holy Spirit enough time to uh, speak to their heart and their mind and Um, It's really case by case at times, but you have two or three witnesses come, and then after two or three witnesses, a a sufficient amount of time, you tell it to the church. And some people say, well, why do you tell it to the church? Well, so the whole church can pray for that brother or that sister to be restored. If someone is caught up in sin, and you go to them, and they don't repent, and Scripture is very clear, after a certain amount of time, two or three witnesses come, and then the third step is you finally tell it to the church. Why, do, why do we, are we trying to really, really mess this guy's or gal's life up? No, our prayer is that they would be restored and out of love. The whole church is praying for them, for the Holy Spirit to do a work in their heart and their life. And the last step is to remove them from the church altogether. Why? Is that loving? Well, because when you remove them from the church as a last step, they see the seriousness of their sin and their need to turn to the Lord. You know, when it comes to the culture, you can't win with the culture when it comes to the church. The culture judges the church and says, listen, the church is so hypocritical. There's a bunch of hypocrites in the church, and there are a lot of hypocrites in the church. But they say there's a lot of hypocrites in the church. They preach one thing, live a life of righteousness, but then they don't live it out. But when you hold one another to a certain account and say, listen, God calls this sin, and so we have to confront one another, hold another accountable, and hopefully restore one another to the fellowship of the church, the other criticism is, well, you don't really love that person, because if you love that person, you wouldn't confront them in their sin. You would let them live however they want. You know what's at stake here this morning? It's the reputation of Jesus Christ. And the reason we confront sin with the purpose of restoring that brother or sister in Christ who has stumbled, even if it's us, is in order that the reputation of Christ might be preserved and Christ might be honored and glorified in all things. And so what's our responsibility? Empowered by the Holy Spirit to restore another who has stumbled or for you to restore me when I have stumbled, but the purpose is restoration. How? In a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness speaks of humility. Um, 
And so how do you exercise humility and gentleness? By considering the fact that you and I are tempted perhaps in different ways than that person. Nevertheless, we are tempted. And so we should consider ourselves lest we fall into the same temptation or a different temptation. So the question is this this morning. How would you expect your brothers and sisters in Christ to hold you accountable with gentleness? That's how you should hold your brothers and sisters in Christ accountable in gentleness as well. Gentleness, of course, is power under control. And you minister to them in a way, depending on the Holy Spirit, to give you the words to say and the tone and how to say it and allow him to do the work as he does. And so if ever you're having a conversation with someone who wants to point out a sin in your life or you have an opportunity to point out a sin in another person's life with the purpose of restoration, the purpose is that you would rely on the Holy Spirit. Come into that meeting starting in prayer and ending in prayer and praying that in all things Christ would be honored and glorified. And so uh, the instruction there is to Hold one another accountable. Restore those who have stumbled. And we do that out of love, out of responsibility, enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's a responsibility of every believer. Thirdly, this morning, how are we expected to treat one another by bearing one another's burdens? You could really sum up one through five here. As bear, or one through six, as bearing one another's burdens. How do you bear one another's burdens? Where if someone's carrying a sin and the consequences of that sin on their shoulders, you can come alongside of them and restore them in love and help bear their burden. Pray for them. Be an accountability partner for them. Be available to them. If I can say this this morning, if you're going to confront a sin in the life of another, you who are spiritual, enabled, empowered by the Holy Spirit, make sure you're willing to also be available to... to continue to be to be available to hold them accountable too, right? Like if you say, hey, I'm noticing sin in your life, and they say to you, hey, I could really use an accountability partner who calls me every evening at 8 p.m., be ready to say, hey, I'm there for you, brother. I'm there for your sister. I'm here to help carry your burdens because there are some burdens that are too heavy to carry. And so the text here is bear one another's burdens. Why are we to bear one another's burdens? Well, it tells us two things. Number one, we all have burdens to bear. As you walk in here this morning, sometimes we greet each other and we say hello and we say, how are you doing? And, and you say, you're good. And I say, I'm good. And we're all like, we're all good. And the reality is we're carrying burdens. Maybe you've got financial burdens, health burdens, spiritual burdens on your shoulders. Maybe you've got kids. Maybe you've got family. Maybe you've got loved ones who are going through a hardship. Maybe you're burdened by something on your heart that God has laid on it, and you're seeking the Lord. You're seeking peace, and we're all carrying burdens. Not only are we all burdened, but there are some burdens God knows that you can't carry on your own. There are some burdens God knows that I can't carry on my own. And certainly, we come to the feet of Jesus. We lay it at his feet. But the primary way, one of the primary ways he helps bears our burdens is through a community of believers like the local church. And so, if you need to have a sense of community, church community, how I many you know it can't necessarily happen just on a Sunday morning where you come in and you go out, right? You've got to build relationships, And so if you don't have that sense of community where you have an opportunity to share your burdens and other people have an opportunity to share their burdens, get into a smaller group. We've got groups that we could get you connected with. 
Perhaps you want to do one-on-one meetings with different people. It possibly could be one-on-one discipleship, and possibly God wants to help you take, your, take that next step that way. And when we bear one another's burdens, what were we doing? We're fulfilling the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Well, Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This love is agape love. It's unconditional love. It's a love that is not dependent on the love of the other. And so when we bear one another's burdens, we don't say, well, I'm going to help him bear his burden because he helped me bear mine. No, you say, because of what Christ has done for me, that Christ has bared my ultimate burden, how much more can I bear the burdens of my brothers and sisters in Christ? And so when we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ, which means to love one another, which is what we should be marked by. When the world walks into the church, they should say, hey, I may not believe what they believe. I may not affirm what they affirm. I may not call sin what they call sin, but there is love among that gathering. There is love among the people of God. The question is, is that evident as we walk in the Spirit in our love for our fellow brothers and sisters? In Christ. Verse 3 For if anyone thinks of himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, if you think you're too important to help bear the burdens of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you are deceived. The greatest way that we can show our love for God is our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and helping bear their burdens. We must guard against the pride of deceptive self-sufficiency. Mark 10, 42 to 45 describes Jesus as our ultimate example. But Jesus called to himself, called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them and, and their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? It means to be the greatest servant. It's not to be marked by selfishness or preference, but by service. It's to ask, how can I pray for you? How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I go beyond my comfort zone in order to serve you and honor God as I do? In John 13, 14 to 15, Jesus set the example, if you remember, as they were eating a meal together, Jesus, he left and he put on, took off his outer garment, put on a towel, And then he got on his hands and knees and began to wash the feet of each of the disciples. If you remember, Jesus uh, was going down the line and Peter said, Whoa, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus said, If I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. I mean, Jesus wasn't just talking about feet. He was talking about Peter's heart. And so Peter said, Don't just wash my feet. Wash everything, Lord. And you remember what Jesus said? He said, He said, if I've washed your feet, it's sufficient. In other words, if I've washed your heart, if I've cleansed you of your sin, it is enough. 
And you would expect after Jesus went one by one washing the feet of the disciples, what's the expectation of the disciples? That they would wash his feet. But listen to what Jesus says in John 13, 14. It says, if then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you would expect him to say, now you're going to each wash mine. No, he doesn't say that. He said, you also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. In other words, we should treat our fellow believers in the local church in a way that we are humbled, in a sense that we consider ourselves the least ranked servant in the room. Who are those who wash the feet of those in the room? They're the least ranked servant, and that's how we are called to see ourselves, and that's what greatness in the kingdom of God is all about. You want the key to a successful, blessed marriage? Outserve your spouse. You want a key to a blessed and healthy family? Outserve everyone else in your family. You want the key to a healthy, effective, blessed church that's making disciples to the ends of the earth. Outserve your fellow believers in the local church. And you say, You're serve, I'm going to outserve, I'm going to serve as best I can to the glory of God. And there you will see health, there you will see effectiveness, there you will see disciples being made literally to the ends of the earth. And so Paul, he says in verse 3 there, for if anyone thinks of himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And so bear one another's burdens. If there were just some ways I would share we can bear our burdens is number one, bear one another's burdens with your presence. Did you know simply by being present here this morning, you're helping bear the burdens of your fellow believers. There's something encouraging after a week whether in the workplace or in the world or all of the burdens that you're carrying, the pressures of life, and there are plenty of distractions in this world that when you come to gather, you look around and you say, wow, there are believers who believe the same thing about Jesus and have the same hope of glory as me, and you can help bear one another's burdens simply by being present, simply by coming to church, simply by attending that small group that you're a part of and it's encouragement to the rest of the people who are there. Secondly, bear one another's burdens through prayer. Prayer is such a great way that I can bear your burden and you can bear mine. Uh, Last week, my grandmother went home to be with the Lord and I can tell you I've gotten so many text messages and cards and people just expressing their condolences. And can I tell you, when you lose a loved one who's very close to you, you feel burdened. But then you experience the church coming alongside of you, help carry that weight. And I can tell you what a blessing it is to be a part of a church who helps bear my burdens through prayer. You know, I was bragging on our church to my brother and sister, and I called them up after I got back, and I said, hey, man, I keep getting these these notes, and people are praying. So so many people are praying for our family, and my brother said, hey, guess what? My church is praying like crazy for our family, too. I said, wow, your church and my church? And my sister said, you won't believe this. My church is praying for our family as well. What a blessing to be a part of a church family who can help bear your burdens through prayer. What are your burdens? You know, it's awesome. During those 24 days of prayer and fasting, and we stood up here and... um, 
Jason Cunningham, one of our elders, during the first couple of weeks, he said, we're not going to go forward. Pull out, out of your bulletin a prayer request, and we want you to write it down. You know, not many people usually write down their prayer requests, but folks were telling us what was burdening them, and what a blessing it was, I can tell you this, during those 24 days to be on our, uh, on our knees praying for those different requests. Every morning praying for the needs of the local body. And we're continuing to hear updates about how God is continuing to answer those prayers. Bear one another's burdens through prayer. Bear one another's burdens through service. I'm continuing to hear stories of how the church continues to serve those whose houses have been um, um, you know, broken down by the ice storm last month. There's some folks who are living in their living room because of all that's going on, people who are out of their house still. And it's been amazing to hear people going to different people's houses. I remember calling one guy this week and saying, what are you up to? And he's saying, I'm going to go cut some trees down for someone in our church. And it's like, wow, what an amazing thing to see the church serve one another and bear one another's burdens. You know, one of the best ways that I've heard that the church is encouraged um, by a ministry. And it's whenever somebody moves in the local church and our deacons have a care team that goes out and calls all these different people and helps people move and they say that's the greatest blessing of all. I've heard people say, you know, that what, that's what told us this is going to be our home church. We really realized when people said, I'm going to leave what I'm doing and I'm going to help you move all of your junk from one house to another, I can tell you that was indeed a blessing. Bear one another's burdens through your service. And then fourthly, bear one another's burdens by your availability. If you will simply be available and say, God, I'm ready to be used by you. Show me what you want me to do. That can be a great blessing. Fourthly, this morning, how are we invited to treat one another in the local church? Believers are expected to take personal responsibility for their individual ministry. Take responsibility for your ministry, your gifting, and your influence. Paul continues on, verse 4, says, But let each one examine his own work. Don't compare your work with the work of someone else, your gifting with the gifting of someone else. Take a look at the work that God has given you and the kind of fruit that he is working through you. And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. So what we have a tendency to do is to compare ourselves with others and say, well, look at their ministry. Look at their effectiveness. Take a look how God is using them. And what God is going to hold you accountable is not what the other person is doing, but what, what you're doing. With the influence you're giving, are you faithful? With the gifting you've been provided, are you faithful? With the ministry to your family, to those in the church, to your small group, whatever that may are you being faithful? Because that's what you will be held accountable for. Verse 5 says, for each one shall bear his own load. Aren't you grateful when you stand before the Lord one day that you won't be held accountable for the load that the other person was to bear in terms of their ministry, their gifting, and their influence? I don't know if you know this or not, but in, in the scriptures we're told that one day we will give an account before the Lord. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will give an account. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10 says this, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not talking about the white throne judgment 
when unbelievers stand before God and then they are condemned to an eternity without God and his people forever and ever in a place called hell. But this is the Bema seat, the judgment seat, when we will all stand before God. And it says that each may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The purpose of this judgment is not condemnation. The purpose of this judgment is commendation. And when you stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, when it says that which which is good and that which is bad. Good there <coughs> refers to that which is useful. Bad there refers that which is useless. And there are going to be some things in this world that you have done and participated in that have no eternal value, but other things that you have invested in that are eternal. And as you have been faithful to carry your load, to exercise your ministry, to use your gifts, to exercise your influence, God will reward those for that. And the purpose of that judgment will be commendation. So if I could give you just a takeaways there, the first one would be this, identify the load God has given you to bear. What has given God given you to bear? If you're a husband or a wife, you know what your load is? To minister to your spouse. To be a good husband. To be a faithful wife. If you are part of a family, you're a parent or a grandparent or a great-great-grandparent, you have a unique ministry to those in your family. If you're a member of the church, you have a ministry to others in the church, a small group, you have a ministry to them. What is your ministry and what is your gifting and, and are you using it uh, accordingly? And then secondly, ask the Holy Spirit to help you faithfully bear your load. You know, we ask God to work in and through us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is a verse we've gone back to again and again as we've been talking about the truth of the gospel. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, or his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, the reason you were saved is unto good works, so that you would glorify him who works in and through you. Are you bearing your load through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you and serves serving others as you do just that? So how are we to treat fellow believers in the local church by exercising our responsibility, our individual responsibility we've been given, by carrying our load, by bearing one another's burdens, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought? And then, fifthly this morning, Believers are expect, expected in relationship to fellow believers to support their teachers with generosity. To support their teachers with generosity. Verse 6 continues and says this, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And so what Paul is saying there is um, when it comes to the ministry of the word, Share in the financial burden with those who are in that ministry. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read in Philippians 4, 15 to 16 what that looks like. Paul says this, Now you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once, once and again for my necessities. In 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, it says, let the elders who rule well be 
counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. The laborer is worth, worthy of his wages. 1 Corinthians 9.11 is the closest text comparing to Galatians here. It says, if we have sown spiritual things for you, it is a great thing if we reap, if we reap your material things. Uh, why does Paul tell believers who are taught the word to share the financial burden of those who teach the word? Because of the importance of those who teach the word being freed to focus on the ministry of the word in prayer. The primary function of a pastor, the primary role of the pastor in Ephesians 4:11 to 16 is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, how? Through the teaching and preaching of the word of God. When you hear the list of leaders in the local church that God has provided, their primary function is preaching the word. He himself, go back to Ephesians 4.11, gave some to be apostles and prophets, evangelists, and then pastors, teachers. There's a hyphen there. Those pastors, teachers, their primary role is to equip the saints for the work of ministry through the teaching and preaching of the word of God. Now, some people look at the pastor and say, that's the minister. Those are the pastoral staff. They're supposed to do the ministry. No, the role of the pastor and of the elder is to equip the saints, the individuals of the local church, for the work of ministry. Listen this morning, my ministry is to help you serve your ministry. My ministry is to equip you with the truth of God's word so that you can minister with your gifts, with your influence, so that you can minister with the ministry that God has given you and you feel fully equipped to share the gospel with your neighbor or in the workplace, to go and serve those in the local church and say, hey, these are the needs of the church. These are the giftings of the church. Let's exercise those gifts accordingly. And so we see the importance of the ministry of the word within the local church. So the primary function of any pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry through the teaching and preaching of God's word. So Paul gives us that. One of the ways that you can bear the burdens of fellow believers in the local church is sharing with generosity with those who teach. The text goes on to describe the principle of the harvest. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. In other words, do not be deceived when it comes to the principle of the harvest that you sow what you reap. Uh, don't think that you can fool God. That's what it means, that God cannot be mocked. You can't fool him when it comes to the principle of the harvest that you sow what you reap. Paul introduces us to an agricultural metaphor. When we're talking about sowing and we're talking about reaping, we're talking about spreading seed and we're talking about reaping, what is the principle of the harvest? Well, if you're a farmer and you spread seed, if you spread sparingly, what's going to happen at the end? You're going to reap sparingly. If you just planted a few seeds, you can expect a small harvest. If you sow generously and you sow your seeds everywhere, you can expect a large harvest. Another principle of that is if you sow bad seed, you can expect a bad harvest. If you sow good seed, you can expect a good harvest. This is the principle of the harvest. Do not be deceived. God can be mocked. Don't try to make God a fool. 
You can't say, okay, I sowed unto the flesh, and then asking, Lord, why is my life the way that it is? If you sow to the flesh and feed the flesh, you're going to expect the consequences that come just with that. So Paul goes on to say, Do not be deceived. God is not balked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will reap corruption. If you feed your flesh, and you think of people who have sinned against you, and your heart is becoming bitter towards them, and you linger on those thoughts in your mind, and your heart turns very bitter, you are feeding your flesh, and you will reap corruption. If you are not willing to forgive as the Lord forgave you, if you are feeding your flesh and going places you know that you shouldn't, looking at things that you know that you shouldn't, and then in the end you say, I don't know how I ended up giving into the temptation. Now some people say, I'm going to go to the, the store, I'm going to buy chocolate, and then I'm going to put it in my, in my cupboard, and then I'm pray, Lord, please don't let me eat the chocolate. Well, you're the one who bought it and put it in the cupboard. Don't sow seeds unto the flesh, because if you sow those seeds, you're going to reap corruption. Same thing with the Spirit. He who sows to the Spirit will reap to, of the Spirit everlasting life. This morning, I want you to know it's not a waste to pray. It's not a waste every morning, first thing in the morning, to set your mind on the Lord Jesus Christ and to give your day to Him. It's never a waste to spend time in the Word. It's never a waste to go and to attend church. When you come to church and you gather with the people of God, you have an opportunity to honor and glorify him. I don't know about you, but I've never walked away from any church and said, man, that was a waste of time. We're reminded this morning, when you invest in spiritual things, you, inv you receive a bountiful harvest and a blessing that comes out of that. You know, a lot of people say, you know, I'm stressed out, I'm worried, I got anxiety, I got all these problems, and, and I, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed by the... By, by, by life in general. Well, how's your prayer life and how's your time in the Word? And if you will say, hey, I'm praying without ceasing, can I tell you, there are different ways that God can minister to you, but that will go an incredibly long way. So sow so of the Spirit and reap everlasting life. Verse 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. To the parents in the room, don't become weary in doing good. Investing in the lives of your children, whatever age or stage they may be at, whether they're a newborn, whether they're toddlers, whether they're in those ages of growing up, middle school, high school, or even have left the home, do not weary in doing good to your children, praying for them, investing in them, um, talking to them about the things of the Lord. It goes a long ways. Uh, for those this morning who are part of family, don't become weary in doing good. For, for those who are praying for someone who doesn't know the Lord right now and, and that person is, is heavy on your heart and you're, you're praying for the God to come through in a, in a miraculous way, don't become weary in doing good. You know, it was a special time this morning. At 9 a.m. hour, we have our prayer in the other room and we had over 20 folks come and we were just praying. We were bearing one another's burdens through prayer, and can I tell you, it was just a sweet time being reminded that prayer is never a waste. And God 
actually accomplishes his purposes through the prayers of his people. What a sweet time when you come together to pray and bear one another's burdens. Can I encourage you, if you've become any bit weary, don't grow weary in doing good. Be faithful. Continue to serve the Lord faithfully. Honor and glorify. Is there a prayer request that you're crying out to God for and you, you know he's burdened your heart for it? Don't grow weary in doing good. Continue to pray and seek the Lord and see what the God does in and through that prayer. Verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. Not just believers, but unbelievers. Those in the workplace, those who treat you well, those who don't treat you well, do good to all, especially to those who are in the household of faith. You know, if you're, if you're here this morning, you're blessing those around you. If you're here this morning and praying together, worshiping the Lord together, we help bear one another's burdens, and we're fulfilling the law of Christ as we are instructed to in his word. If I could give you just two takeaways and then we'll close this morning. The first is this. This morning, I pray that you would walk away knowing the importance of Christian community. When it comes to Christian community, we're not just talking about coming to church and then leaving and then going about our day, but actually having authentic community having the kind of transparency where we can hold one another accountable and bear one another's burdens, God expects us to be in relationship with the local church. And the second thing I pray that you would take away this morning is that you would know that God invites you to treat one another in a way that honors and glorifies him. If you need to take your next step with God this morning, the first step to be a part of the church family is to trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord is to recognize that by your own human effort, you cannot obtain salvation. God doesn't expect you to be able to because he knows in your sinful state you can't. But the invitation is to believe in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins and became your substitute that if you believe in him and trust in him, you would be forgiven and you would have everlasting life. If you want to experience the new creation in Christ, Put your faith in Jesus, and he will bless you greatly. This morning, if you need to take your next step with God and be baptized to testify to the local church and celebrate what God has done in your life, get baptized. For you this morning, if your next step is membership, you would say, hey, I want to serve with my gifts. I'm not using my gifts. I'm not using my influence. I'm not using my ministry because I'm not part of any church body. I want to invite you to become a membership of the church. We'd invite you to come to Twin Rivers if this is the church God has placed you at and serve with your gifts accordingly. But we believe that God wants to do something with you. And so whether it's Twin Rivers or another church, the invitation is to serve at a church where you are aligned with the vision, the values, and the mission of the church. And let's run together. Let's serve the Lord and glorify him together. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. And if your next step is service, whatever that may be, let's go. Let's serve the Lord and let's be the people of God who make disciples in Springfield, in Eugene, in Lane County, and even to the ends of the earth. Can we pray this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder that uh, we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. For the reminder that we have received the adoption as sons and we have are part of a, an amazing family of God. 
And we get to see that every time we come to church. We get to see our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, at the same time, you instruct us and expect us to love one another and fulfill the law of Christ. To be marked by love as you have loved us, that we would love others, bear one another's burdens, and love each other unconditionally and sacrificially. I pray, Lord, in no way that our lives would be marked by selfishness, but it would be marked by service. For those who need to take their next step with you this morning, I pray that you would lay it on their heart and convict them of the truth that, that, Lord, they can take their next step with you to honor and glorify you, that they would use their gifts, their ministry, and their service to honor you in all things. Father, I pray for someone here today who hasn't trusted in Jesus, but today they're ready to commit their lives to you. Father, I pray that they can express this. Father, I know by my own human effort and work, I cannot obtain salvation. I can't be a good person to get into heaven. That's why I need Jesus. Today, I put my faith in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I believe he came from heaven to earth, died on the cross, became my substitute, And as I put my trust in him, I believe I'm forgiven and I have everlasting life. The one I will follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, we're so glad we are a part of the family of God. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.